When three people were spotted on a remote part of the west coast hacking into a riverbed, it was much more than a chunk of rock they were digging up. It was a 23-million-year-old whale fossil. Police searched a granity property yesterday morning and found the whale, which was taken from Little Wanganui Beach over Labour weekend. Tom Horden Castle says the 23-million-year-old fossil holds special significance for the town of Karamea. It set off a debate. Who does it belong to? Is it finders keepers? Should it stay on the land or should it go to a museum? It has also unearthed some worrying facts about the state of paleontology in New Zealand. The danger is a lot of these sites that have been eroded uh, away in front of our eyes, they're all just going to disappear. And so the way you can think about it is we're losing pages of this book on New Zealand's biological heritage faster than we can actually find them and preserve them and, and tell that amazing story. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today on The Detail, the rules and regulations of fossil hunting and the desperate push to keep it alive. Dr Nick Rawlins, I'm the director of the Otago Paleogenetics Lab in the Department of Zoology at the University of Otago. There's a word in the fossil world, rockhound. Nick's not one, but there's a handful of fossil-mad rockhounds in Aotearoa and they're a crucial part of that community. A rockhound is what someone who does it more for a hobby. Yes, so a rockhound is basically someone who likes to collect precious rocks. With geology, there's a vast array of different minerals and rock sorts, and so they collect rocks. It's for a hobby to build collections. And so there's been a lot of publicity recently around rockhounds and the ethics of collecting rocks from uh, rivers on the public estate. Take me through the process of it. I mean, when you go looking for a fossil, how does it all begin? So we generally have a really good idea of where fossils may occur by looking at historical museum records or historical literature, like the the books written by some of New Zealand's famous paleontologists like Haast and Hochstetter. We looked at documentary evidence from Ferdinand von Hochstetter, who is the father of New Zealand geology. And Haast found about an extinct bird called a kakapo, and he said, now men, he said, the first one that brings me in a kakapo, I'll give him a sovereign. And... What we need to do before we actually go looking is we really need to have an idea of what is the legal status of the land? Who owns it? Is it private land where we just need to talk to the landowner and get their permission? Is it uh, crown land like dock or regional council or local council land where we need to talk to them and get permits from them? Or is it public land like riverbeds or the foreshore where no one owns it and there's like a finder's keepers rule? So we, we need to know... Who owns the land and what's the legal status? Um, what bylaws may be in place? Because some councils may have local or regional uh, bylaws that administer the foreshore. But we also need to talk to the local communities in the area. So not just uh, the locals that live there, but also tangata whenua, the, 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 the iwi, runanga, hapu around fossil collecting as well. So it's all done ethically. Gosh, it, it's quite a process before you even step out there and start looking. Yeah, it's quite a process and you need to do a lot of groundwork. And if you've covered all of that, then you you need to go uh, collect. But there's certain things that you need to take into account. So like if you've found a fossil on public land, it's usually a finder's keeper's um, law. So if you can get to it easily, if you can carry it away with you and if you can excavate it 
um, like pick it up or minor excavation around a rock hammer and a rock chisel, then you can take it away. But local councils may have bylaws that mean you can't excavate within a certain area, you need permission from the council, you can't use mechanical excavation, or you need to seek permission under the Resource Management Act. So say if you're going to look for more bones in central Otago, where are you going? So there's been a lot of discoveries of moa bones in central since the 18, uh, 1800s of some really famous uh, swamp sites uh, like Pyrar and Styx and Hamiltons in, in those areas. And so for me is if we're wanting to find moa bones in a cave, we're looking for rock outcrops, crevices that we can get down into. There are famous caves in uh, central Otago like Ernskluge Cave where moa bones have been found. Okay, we're here at the Ernskluge Cave. And this is probably the most historic cave we've ever been in. Anyone's ever been in. Found in 1870 and hardly anyone has ever been in it. If we're after, say, a swamp site where the bones are preserved in a mower swamp, we'll drive around central Otago and you'll look for low-lying areas and paddocks that look a bit boggy or have uh, reeds growing out of them. Uh, we generally have a very good indication of who the, the landowners are. A lot of institutions in New Zealand, whether universities or CRIs, will have a lane information program that will tell us who the owners of every parcel of land is, and then there's a bit of detective work to match the name to a phone number in the white pages. But say we've found a site, we've got permission, we usually take for a swamp site a, a centimetre diameter metal rod that's about two metres long, and we'll start probing the ground. And if we get a chink, it's stone. If we get a thud, it's wood. There's wood in all of these swamps. And if we get a clunk, it's bone. Mm. And so we'll plant a little flag in the ground, and then we will excavate around the greatest concentration of flags. And sometimes we strike it rich, like we did in uh, North Canterbury, excavating a ten to 14,000-year-old mower swamp full of bones. Sometimes we hit a historic death pit where farm animals have been trapped in a swamp or, or they've been buried in the swamp by the farmer. What's it like when you get that clunk? The clunk. So, yeah, you can, you can kind of feel it and you can kind of hear it. It's, it's a really nice feeling that we've got bone. If it's close to the surface, it may not be well-preserved, but the further down it is, the, the more well-preserved um, it is. And like when you do excavate these bones, they can come out really, really solid. So we have pulled out um, giant Ice Age mower um, from these swamps. Uh, mower pelvis, the pelvis bone that's had uh, the rip marks from harst eagle talons, where... A mower's got stuck in a swamp, a harst eagle has come down, landed on the back and just ripped out all the bone down near where the kidneys would be. Harst's eagle, the largest eagle that has ever lived. It weighed almost 15 kilograms and had a wingspan of more than two and a half metres. So it's really amazing because you're pulling out these bones that haven't seen the light of day for thousands, tens of thousands um, of years and they're... You can think of it as like different pages in the in the prehistoric book of New Zealand. You're really forming a story around that particular bone or, or that set of bones. Some of the swamps we've excavated mower from, uh, they've had uh, gizzard stones and matted plant material in these uh, uh, articulated associated skeletons, and we can work out what the animal ate. We can work out, did they get the gizzard stones from their local creek or a creek up and over the, the set of hills in another region? We can also look at what is the orientation 
uh, of the bone. So the, this swamp we excavated in North Canterbury with colleagues uh, from Landcare Research is all the bones were orientated in, in one direction in the swamp, and we didn't think of anything of it. We knew swamps occasionally liquefied, but then when the Christchurch earthquakes hit, we suddenly thought, oh, I wonder if that's it. And then when all the earthquake history of the region came out after the Christchurch earthquakes, we think this is what was causing all of the reorientation of the bones in the swamp. But Nick, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story of our past, but why do we need to know about this now? We're in a rapidly changing world with um, with climate change, with increasing environmental impact, whether it's from climate change or humans, but there's uh, a famous phrase in geology of the past is the key to the present, and I would argue the future. If we can work out how animals and ecosystems responded in the past to uh, similar climatic and, and human-driven variables, we can then predict how they may respond uh, in the future. But we can also use it in a way, if we broaden it out a bit, of how did those ecosystems function? What was their levels of genetic variation? What were their population numbers? And so if conservation in New Zealand is going to move towards more Tangata whenua having um, access to uh, national parks for Mahinga Kai for food gathering, if conservation is going to be, let's get population numbers of animals up to a, a level that they can be sustainably harvested, this sort of research can uh, tell us whether animals could ever be sustainably harvested. What were they like? Were they healthy species, healthy populations before humans turned up? And so we can use all this information for really like evidence-based conservation management and whether that's through DOC, NGOs like Forest and Bird or whether it's iwi being kaitiakitanga of these animals. Well, it's done. The giant crab's been prepped <laughs> and it only took me 208 hours. I was looking at the website of a fossil hunter this morning, a New Zealand fossil hunter. Well worth it. Just have a look at this crab. It's a beautiful crab. I'm so happy with it. They donate uh, a lot of their fossils to museums and universities. But actually, there's quite a lot of money to be made from selling them, isn't there, into private collections? There is more so overseas. So overseas, there's a big trade in fossils um, between private collectors, but also museums want to be able to buy private fossils as well because to be able to study these specimens, to publish on them, they have to be in private ownership. But we need private collectors. Um, so private collectors have the resources, they have the money, they're spread around the country and they're kind of almost creating this paleontological forecast of what fossils are eroding out where and what can be found in New Zealand that allows the scientists who the private collectors work really closely with to then put in our resources and go where should we invest money and attention because paleontology in New Zealand it's a ageing workforce, it's critically underfunded. And so we need these private collectors to work with museums. In New Zealand, there's not a huge market for fossils. Most of the selling goes from the private collectors that work really closely with museums to the museums. And that's because we have something called uh, the Protected Objects Act. If a treasure of national significance needs to be brought back to New Zealand ownership, the government has the power to requisition items under the Protected Objects Act. If anything is around 50 years old or older and could be considered an artefact or a protected object, you can legally collect 
fossils, you can own them in New Zealand, you can sell them in New Zealand, but you can't sell them or send them overseas um, unless you apply to the Ministry of Culture and Heritage under the Protected Objects Act for an export permit. And then that permit application will go to experts in universities and museums that will assess, is this scientifically important? Should it stay in New Zealand? And so the analogy is, if we have tarsometatarsis, a foot bone of a mower, and it's common as muck, and there are hundreds of these in museums, then we might be quite happy for that to be shipped out of New Zealand permanently. But if we've got a skull of a mower and there's only five skulls of the species known in New Zealand, then it'd be like, no, that needs to stay in New Zealand because that's clearly a protected object. But how do you know that there's not some sort of illegal activity going on? I mean, I, I read a story this morning about fossil rustlers being a big international problem. Rangers in Capitol Reef National Park are asking for help to find stolen fossils. So how did three rare fish fossils from Brazil end up for sale online? That's what federal agents are trying to figure out today after discovering someone trying to sell the 110 million year old relics. They end up damaged, mislabeled in auction houses, places like Trade Me, and they go for tens of thousands of dollars to private collectors. So how do you know that sort of activity isn't going on in New Zealand? We suspect it's going on. So there's a big movement led by Colin Muscali at Te Papa to basically stop the sale of mower bones on Trade Me. Because if mower bones come up on Trade Me, if they're all shattered and fragmented, it's like, well, you've got them from an archaeological site, so therefore they're illegally collected straight away. And you might get skeletons come up and go, well, based on the colour of the skeleton, what bits of sediment are still stuck to the skeleton? How preserved does it look? Where they say it's from, we can go, well, that's a cave site, that's from this region, that's all crown land, that's illegally collected, or something dodgy's happened, like uh, one I saw a year ago had two left legs. And they're saying, oh, this is a complete skeleton we found. It's like, well, it can't be. You've got a conglomeration of bones and try to make a skeleton. So we're trying to stop the sale of, of those bones. And there's been, consequently, a big increase in the sale of them. There's an auction house here in Dunedin that has regularly had them for sale for ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. But if we do ethical fossil collecting and follow the rules, the system works. And we generally only work with um, ethical fossil collectors. Are these laws strong enough? Are they, yeah, appropriate? Is there a better way of policing this? I mean, you say that there's a finder's keeper's rule. Is that good enough? In some cases, no, like the example on the West Coast where there was a 23-million-year-old whale fossil that was preserved in the mouth of the Little Whanganui River just south of Karamea. It had been known by the locals for... 60, 70 years was like a, a local treasure. It was more powerful being in place in situ as a way for families to take their kids down and show, show them the fossils than it was out of the ground. In this case, ethically, what the collector should have done was actually engage and consult with the local community in Tangata Whenua around collecting this. But in this case, the law may have been broken in that probably a, a, a regional bylaw where it states you you can't do mechanical excavation within 50 metres of a natural hazard. And so that river mouth is classed as a natural hazard. But then it really comes down to um, what do you class as excavation mechanical? So the West Coast Regional Councils has come out and said 
yep, this law was actually designed to stop people with diggers taking away sand, taking away rocks, causing major erosion, and it wasn't made with fossil excavation in mind. Because how do you define excavation? Do you, is it a small-scale excavation or is it with a digger? And then how do you find mechanical? Again, is a rock saw class as mechanical? So I wouldn't say there's a hole in the law. I think just if everyone knows about ethical fossil collecting, then the rules do work. It's a bit hard to bring in new law. So like archaeological sites, which are associated with human activity, those can be easily protected. But fossils come in so many different forms, different sorts of sites, different ages, that it gets really, really hard to have a law that would protect everything and not at the same time ban fossil collecting that you might go on with your kids that would inspire the next generation of paleontologists or scientists interested in New Zealand's natural history. You've got a a lovely story about how you got into paleontology yourself. Yeah, so I grew up in Nelson. Uh, My dad was a geology-loving English teacher and my mum was a history-loving communications lecturer. So all of our time was spent doing road trips around New Zealand that were all full of uh, geology, and we you'd spend your your time tramping up in the uh, the back blocks of Golden Bay and poking your heads down caves on Taika Hill, finding moa bones, but just really developed this absolute love of natural history and New Zealand archaeology at the same time with archaeological digs that I was part of as a teenager. If it's a very small group of people in New Zealand, like there's not that many fossil hunters and you're saying that it's an it's an ageing group as well, does that worry you? Yeah, it, it does. As we need, we can train paleontologists through the university system. So if you want to do paleontology at the University of Otago, uh, the best thing you can do is enrol in a double degree in geology and zoology and that gives you all of the founding you need to go and do postgraduate study in paleontology. But unless we can actually attract paleontologists to New Zealand and keep them, give them permanent jobs and give them funding, then the danger is a lot of these sites that are being eroded uh, away in front of our eyes, they're all just going to disappear. And so the way you can think about it is we're losing pages of this um, book on New Zealand's biological heritage faster than we can actually find them and preserve them and tell that amazing story. And so this is where the private collectors really, really help. But again, we need the younger generation of private collectors coming um, through as well that work closely with um, scientists. How do you change that then? You know, how do you make it enticing for young people? I think we need to become a jack of all trades. But um, rather than being siloed within departments or institutions, I think there needs to be a lot more collaboration across New Zealand, but also internationally, that we can start shining the international spotlight on uh, New Zealand. And that's that's been done with the amazing work that Daphne Lee has done on Folden Mar, this 23-million-year-old fossil site near Middlemarch that's got major international attention. For this extraordinary spot which was formed by a volcanic eruption some 23 million years ago and which preserves countless rare and well-preserved fossils. It's the site of interest for a commercial mining company, which has gone into receivership. The site is locked to the outside world and still has no legal protection. And the fight is still on to save this deposit. Also the work to Papa and Otago University doing at uh, St Bathans, this 15 to 19 million year old fossil site in, in central Otago. So doing all that science communication, but also showing why it matters, why paleontology, which 
some people would consider a dusty old science of old white males with beards wearing T-shirt shorts and tramping boots, why it actually matters to New Zealand. Is part of the problem other parts of the world are so much more interesting when it comes to fossils, that New Zealand is a relatively young country, so there's not as many exciting finds here? Part of it might be that. Like if you think of a, across the ditch in Australia, they've got dinosaur fossils, they've got giant sauropod skeletons, they've got Australovenator, which was this giant meat eater, they've got ankylosaur skeletons, complete um, marine reptiles. And New Zealand, because we're so geologically dynamic, the fossils just get eroded. We have dinosaurs, thanks to actually one of New Zealand's most famous private collectors, Joan Whiffen. A remarkable 80-year-old housewife and self-educated paleontologist, Joan Whiffen, went exploring in some rugged backcountry and found New Zealand's first dinosaur bone. She was so knowledgeable, she ended up finding dinosaur fossils, pterosaur fossils, the flying uh, reptiles and extinct marine reptiles, and working with scientists around the world, actually publishing papers herself describing new species. So one of the things we want to do with this um, New Zealand fossil emblem campaign uh, that I'm running, and we've got the short list of the fossils at the moment we want to put out to the public vote, is actually really start highlighting that, yeah, we may not have exquisite dinosaur fossils like in the in the US and in Australia, but we've got amazing sets of fossils um, from uh, across the kingdom of life that tell really cool stories about how animals arrived in New Zealand, how they adapted to our dynamic geological, climactic and um, human history to, to drum up all that interest in New Zealand paleontology, but also in fossil tourism in New Zealand as well. And the New Zealand Fossil Emblem campaign is a celebration of our prehistoric past. And Nick and his team will release a short list of favourite fossils very soon. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom 4RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Sarah Robson. And thanks to Nick Rawlins. Kakite. Ka